Well, we're working through Luke's orderly, researched, eyewitness account of the good news of Jesus. We've started and we've looked at the, the birth narratives, the Christmas stories related to Jesus around the person of Mary and the person of Zechariah. Last time we were together, we looked at the uh, person of John the Baptist uh, coming out of the wilderness, and we ended there. Let's go to chapter uh, 3 of Luke. If you have your Bibles from the pew, uh, it'd be page 947. Uh, in these Bibles, otherwise Luke chapter 3, uh, after John had come out of the wilderness baptizing people for repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. We read this in Luke chapter 3, verse 27. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So here's kind of Jesus' launch. This is kind of Jesus' commissioning. Uh, to begin his ministry and, and to bring the good news, the song that, that Rick had selected, the good news that the world needs to hear. This is sort of the, uh, the in introduction after Jesus is baptized. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. The voice from heaven authorizes, endorses, affirms um, who Jesus is, and away he goes. And we'd like to think away we go, but then as you keep reading, all of a sudden you realize Luke puts this genealogy, this list of names there. And those are the tough parts of our scripture reading. And here's this long list. What's interesting about Luke's genealogy as opposed to Matthew's genealogy, Matthew only goes back to Abraham. Luke goes back to Adam. Luke goes back to the very beginning. Because there's an element as Luke presents his, his good news about Jesus, as Luke talks about what Jesus has come to do, there is this element that it's for everyone. The idea of going back to Adam is, is the sense that the good news is for the whole world. And so in Luke's genealogy, I'm giving you the, um, a pass, I guess you could say. If you jump to the last name in the genealogy, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke chapter 4, page 948. So Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. And now, the Holy Spirit is very important for Luke. We notice that in the baptism account, in those couple of verses of the baptism account, right? The Holy Spirit is present. The Holy Spirit is there in the birth of Jesus. At the baptism, verse, two, verse 22 of chapter 3, the Holy Spirit de descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. Now, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. John came out of the wilderness. Jesus goes into the wilderness. Full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, verse 2, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those 40 days, and at the end of them he was hungry. I don't know about your expectations, but I think sometimes in church circles, especially if we've grown up in church, I think there is an element that if God does something good and wonderful for us, we go on a retreat, we make a significant spiritual decision, uh, we do sort of a, a benchmark dedication of our lives to Jesus, I think there's an assumption that, okay, Satan's probably going to do what he can to undermine that. The story of Jesus going out into the wilderness is not Satan 
that sends him into the wilderness, right? Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And I think most of us know that the wilderness is not an ideal place. We've talked about transition times. We've talked about even this experience for Estevan Alliance Church. It's a transition time. It's kind of, you're in, in no, no person's land, I guess would be the right way to say it. You're in no, per, you know, am I coming? Am I going? It's kind of the children of Israel in the wilderness. They knew they had a destination. They had left Egypt. They were in the wilderness and they were on their way to the promised land. But the wilderness was no picnic. The wilderness was no fun in the sun. The wilderness was a very tough place. And for the most part, the wilderness in the Bible is a very difficult place. And so Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. But he goes into the wilderness fully equipped, fully empowered, fully energized because he is full of the Holy Spirit. He is prepared. He is ready for what awaits him. But make no mistake about it, it was the Holy Spirit that led him into this challenging time. It was the Holy Spirit that led him into this time, as we will see in a moment, a time of testing, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Verse 3, and we'll read the whole section down to verse 13, and then we'll go back and talk about it a little bit. And I hope before we keep reading a little bit, this idea that it's the Holy Spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness, it's the Holy Spirit that set this up, gets our attention a little bit to say, ah, maybe I need to pay a little bit closer attention because I think sometimes our tendency is to assume, no, that's just, that's just Satan coming in to undermine, to uh, sideswipe me, to take my feet out from under me. There's a bigger purpose. There's a bigger purpose here than that. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Verse 3. This is at the end of his 40 days. He's been fasting. He's hungry. And, and by the way, 40 days, 40 days of temptation, not just at the end of the temptation, but it's 40 days of temptation. You can read these 13 verses in probably 40 seconds. Probably. At least two minutes. But for 40 days, Satan is back and forth with Jesus tempting him. And these are sort of the, the final salvos he takes at Jesus in the wilderness. Verse 3, the devil said to him, If or since, there's two ways to translate that, ver that word. If or since you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. That's... Not a surprising temptation after 40 days of not eating any food. Not surprising that the devil would look for the, um, the vulnerable spot, the soft spot. And Jesus answered, it is written, people do not live on bread alone. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. The devil led him to Jerusalem 
and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now, if you're familiar with Matthew's account, just stop here for a moment. If you're familiar with Matthew's account, what Luke has is two and three are reversed. Luke ends with Jesus being taken to the temple, to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is, is a critical factor in Luke's account of who Jesus is and what he has come to do and this good news for the world. And so Luke puts Jerusalem as the final temptation that he talks about as opposed to the middle one because Jerusalem plays a significant part. In fact, Luke chapter 9, verse 52, this is sort of the turning point in the whole account of Luke's narrative about Jesus where in Luke chapter 9, verse 52, it says, Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Knowing what was ahead, knowing what was in store for him, Luke 9.52 is sort of this turning point, this tipping point, and everything then goes to Jerusalem. So, the devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it's written. He will command it. Now, see, Jesus has replied by quoting Scripture, so the devil says, okay, I'm going to throw a little Scripture back at you. It is written, He, God, will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Psalm 91. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Before we talk about the three temptations, something to notice in this. These temptations are personal. These temptations are sort of one-on-one. -on -one. What the devil tries to do with Jesus, and even, even the, the temptation at the temple, there, there's no sense that there's anybody else around, okay? There's no sense that this is a public demonstration of your power. This is Jesus and Satan one-on-one. -on -one. And what Satan is doing is he is personalizing, he is personalizing these challenges, these temptations, He's making it about you. He's making it about Jesus the individual. And I know we like to emphasize the idea that we have a personal relationship with Jesus. But there is also a sense, a very important sense, of what it means to be together collectively as the body of Christ. We talked about this back in the fall when Paul's letter to the Ephesians about how the body of Christ works. And it's so important. It's not either or with this personal versus collective corporate sort of sense. And certainly for the children of Israel, it has always been more the corporate sense. For the children of Israel in the Old Testament, it's where we go one, we go all. For the children of Israel, in the corporate sense in the Old Testament, it's the good of the many outweighs the good of the one. It's this corporate sense to the point where even though there is a believing faithful remnant, the children of Israel still go into exile. The faithful believing remnant still has to experience all the horrors of the exile that the sinful people of Israel did. So in this experience, Satan tries to personalize it. He tries to take these promises of God, the sort of big picture promises of God, and says, these are for you. And there's a sense in which, in our faith, we sometimes over-personalize things. 
And that's why this, this temptation of Jesus, I think, is really helpful to us because, well, Rick Warren, purpose-driven life, the first sentence, it's not about you. But notice what Satan does here. He's saying to Jesus, yeah, it is about you. It's about your hunger. It's about your power. It's about, does your father love you? It's extremely personal. And I think that helps us maybe just back off for a second sometimes and say, wait a minute. How much of my faith is about me? How much of the things I want God to do is about me? Do I really have a sense of the body of Christ? Do I really have a sense of my brothers and sisters and our life together? The first temptation. Jesus is tempted to use his power as the Son of God for his own ends, for his own needs. Pretty simple. You're hungry, you can turn these stones into bread. You're hungry, you need to live. And Jesus goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. If you've got your Bibles, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 8 because I think it's kind of good. We won't spend much time around Deuteronomy chapter 8, but in fact, Deuteronomy 5, 6, 7, and 8 are sort of the background to Jesus' responses to the temptation. I would encourage you, if you've got some time, to just read through Deuteronomy 5. That's the Ten Commandments. That's the Deuteronomy version of the Ten Commandments. And chapter 6 and 7 and 8, and how it talks about here's, here's the background to what's happening in the wilderness with Jesus. The first temptation Jesus uses, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let me read Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. Be careful to obey all the commands I am giving you today. Then you will live and multiply, and you will enter and occupy the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for 40 years, humbling you and testing you whether or not you would really obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people need more than bread for their life. Real life comes by feeding on every word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. It's not about... It's not about just reading your Bible. Life is more than food. Life is more than food. Life is more than the physical. Life is more than the material. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus is going to say, your life is more than food, your life is more than clothes, which is interesting because what did John the Baptist invite those who were coming forward to be baptized to do? Well, if somebody is hungry, give them food. If somebody needs clothes, give them your clothes. But in 12, 23, Jesus says, wait, realize your life is more than food. Life is more than just the physical, the material. There is more to life than meets the eye. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, he said to the woman at the well, my food, my meat, King James Version, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. My food, my real food that makes me really live is to do the will of of my father. I love the words in Jeremiah chapter 15 where the prophet, who if any prophet sort of has a lifelong wilderness experience, is probably Jeremiah. Nothing but trouble, nothing but hardship, nothing but heartache. 
And Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 15, your words were found and I did eat them. Your words were found and I did eat them. And he, prophets did some strange things. I, he may even have literally eaten the scroll. I wouldn't put it past him. Your words were found and I did eat them. And they were to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Life is more than food. And, and Satan comes along and says, you're really, really hungry. Forty days. I don't know. I can't go four hours without eating. Sharon and I went out to Tim's after Bennett had his hockey practice yesterday morning, and I thought, oh, that'll do me. I'm good. I'm good till supper. We weren't home two hours, and I had to make ham sandwich and some chips. And Forty days. Forty days. And Satan says, here, turn these stones into bread. Uh, life is more than food, Jesus says. There's a much bigger, much bigger story at work. Temptation number two. Jesus is tempted to give the devil what belongs only to God. Here, here's all. Satan is half right. He often is. He is saying, I've been given this. He, he Whatever Satan has is given to him by God. So it's, it's a half-truth. He is the God of this world, and God has given him certain authority with limits. Think of it in these terms. If only I could have a little more blank. If only I could have a little more. It's sort of what Satan is saying. Here's, here's, here's all these kingdoms of the world, all the resources of the world. They're yours if you will bow down and worship me. If only I had a little more money, if only I had a little more power, if only I had a little more control, if only I had a little more authority, I could change things. I could change these things in my life. I could change these things in my family's life. I could change these things in my work life. I could change these things in my church life. I could change these things in other people's lives, right? That's, that's the temptation. A little more power, a little more authority, and then you're in control. Jesus says, no, it's written. You will worship the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. But what do I bow down to? What do I pay homage to just to get a little more control or just to get a little more authority or just to have a little more power? What things am I willing to sort of cave on just to make that happen, even just once? Am I going to cut a corner? Am I going to shave an edge? Because... Yeah. Interesting, when I think about that, I think about how we as parents and grandparents, I, control is a big issue. Control is a big issue. What edges did I shave so I could have a little more control over my kids? What authority, what power plays did I make so I could have a little more control over my kids so they did 
what I want now, obviously, right? When a parent thinks that, he's only having the best interest of his children in mind. Do I? Or do I want it to be easy for me? Do I want life to work for me through them? See, that's, that's this whole power control thing. What will I give into just this one time? But here's the wilderness, right? And what happens in the wilderness, in the tough times in the wilderness, in the challenges of the wilderness, in the hardship of the wilderness? Jesus is alone in the wilderness. What do they say about character? What do they say about character? Character is what comes to the surface when you're alone, when you're in the dark, when you're in the troubled times. The desperation, the, the desire, the will to have things go the way we want them to go. Isn't that the same temptation Satan offered Jesus? I'll give you this power. And so we shave an edge. We, we cave on a certain characteristic or a value or something we said we would never do. And we do it. Because it might give us some leverage and it might give us some control. Temptation number three. The temptation here, and it's in interesting because Satan takes Jesus to the temple. What is, what is the temple for the people of Israel? The temple is the living presence of God. It's where God dwells. If you want to know that God is in the center of the people of Israel, you look to Jerusalem, you look to the temple, and you say, there is God. And so Satan takes Jesus to the temple and says, okay, we're at the top. Now cast yourself down. At the end of 40 days in the wilderness, at the end of 40 days in this desert place, cast yourself down and prove that God is really with you. Jump. He will save you, and that will prove that God hasn't abandoned you. Because Deuteronomy, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, you shall not put your, the Lord your God to the test. And it goes back to the time when the children of Israel put God to the test. And the key to their testing of God was when they said to God and to Moses, is the Lord really among us? And so the temptation here is to prove that God is really with you. Has your wilderness experience ever been that bleak that you just need God to show you a sign? That he is there? Putting God to the test, to twist his arm, to force his hand. Got me thinking about something that happened last November. You may remember the story of John Allen Chow, the American missionary who went to that little island in the Andanam Ocean, about 700 miles off the coast of India. Um, the North Sentinel Islands, a tribe of people that had hardly ever had human contact. How many remember the story? And he was shot by the natives. Interesting to read some of the stories and some of the accounts. In fact, Graham, I, if you ever need a Sunday off from Sunday school, I'd love to take a Sunday school hour and just play this out because it's very interesting to take on him just kind of going in some would say recklessly and foolishly and others would say man it was an act of faith 
It, it was, he knew these people needed Jesus. And I'd love to have a little discussion, and, and not a debate, not an argument, just a little discussion about different takes on, on John Allen Chow and his experience. Um, but that point where our faith almost becomes foolishness, and we're putting God to the test, because we need God to prove that he's real, we need God to prove that he is there, we need God to prove that he is with us. And notice that Satan can quote scripture too. It's interesting the songs Rick picked for us this morning. Um, the one song, Nobody Loves Me Like You, there are some sort of, I would say, totalizing kind of promises that that songwriter, Ren Collective, I think. Was that Ren Collective? Chris, that was Chris Tomlin. Sorry. Um, but there's these totalizing statements about uh, our sin... Is, is gone forevermore, I think is one of the lines in there. These, these big picture, big stroke kind of promises of God. And then later on, just before the sermon, uh, after the offering, we sang about the world needs Jesus and the difficulties and the challenges. And it wasn't just about the world. The last verse was about us, how I need you. In Luke chapter 1 to 9, and even in, in the the promises about Jesus, if you go back to Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 and what Jesus is going to do, they, they are these big banner kind of totalizing sort of statements about what Jesus is going to accomplish. And it sounds like nothing is ever going to get in his way. But then, as I said, we come to Luke chapter 9, and from Luke chapter 9 on to the end of the gospel of Luke and Luke's account of the good news of Jesus, we know that Jesus has all kinds... In fact, this, this passage ends with the devil left him for a while until an opportune time. And so, for the most part, that's when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross. What's Satan doing here? He's taking the Bible out of context. He's taking the Bible out of context. And sometimes we do that. Sometimes we take those big totalizing promises and think, they're for me. And that's, that's the personal problem, right? That's this whole problem of personalizing everything, that it's about me. And we take those big promises and say, Lord, this, this promise is for me. I claim it. I, I mark sermons as a member of or, the ordaining council. I mark sermons. And uh, boy, uh, all kinds of examples of passages being taken out of Scripture. You know, a verse being used, and it's like, it's like a runway, right? And yet they start off with a verse, and away they go. Who knows where they're going to travel, but usually ends up having nothing to do with the verse. Just use it as a starting point. Take it out of context. Um, prosperity gospel. Preachers. Take all kinds of verses out of context. Uh, name it and claim it. Word of faith kind of stuff. Oh, we, we do it too. I would suspect some of us have some life verses that aren't even related to New Testament Christians. And we're saying, that verse is for me. Or we have statements like, God said it, that settles it. God said it, that settles it, I believe it. Well, everything has meaning in context. Everything has meaning in context. Satan is very good at taking the word of God out of context. A number of years ago, the Barna Research Group said this about how Christians in North America handle the Bible. Bible reading has become the religious equivalent of soundbite journalism. 
When people read the Bible, they typically open it, read a brief passage without much regard for the context, and consider the primary thought or feeling that the passage provided. If they're comfortable with it, they accept it. Otherwise, they deem it interesting but irrelevant to their life and move on. There is shockingly little growth evident in people's understanding of the fundamental themes of Scripture and amazingly little interest in deepening their knowledge and application of biblical principles. In other words, we treat the Bible like a multivitamin. And I get my verse for the day or my passage for the day. It's my multivitamin and away I go. Nah. The Bible is meat. The Bible is my food. The Bible is, the Word of God is my life. So where does that leave us? Well, first of all, it reminds us that Jesus is the Son of God who overcomes the evil one by his faithfulness to his Father. Jesus alone in the power of the Spirit stands forth as the victor. Not just our rescuer, he's our rescuer because he is the victor. Jesus and the entire human race, where we fail, Jesus succeeds. See, even that passage in Deuteronomy, right? It didn't say Israel, didn't say the children of God will live by bread alone. Do not live by bread alone. It says humanity. All-encompassing. It's about Jesus and the entire human race. Where we fail, Jesus succeeds. So what? Now Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since children have flesh and blood... Jesus too shared in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil. He defeated him in the wilderness. He destroyed him at the, at the cross and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those of us who are being tempted. Lest we think our lives should be any easier than Jesus' life, which was the whole context of the wilderness, right? Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those of us who are being tempted. And then over to Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Tempted in every way. Every way. There is nothing Jesus experienced that you and I haven't experienced. He's tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. The difference between you and me and Jesus is he didn't blow it. 
Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you know Jesus as your Savior, if you know that Jesus died for you, and if you know that Jesus died for your brothers and sisters around this room and around the world, you know that you have a great high priest who has gone into heaven, an advocate, a helper, a comforter. But one who has been touched by sin, just as we are. But he didn't sin. So as Luke paints this picture of the good news of Jesus, the good news is that Jesus experienced life as we experience life. He made a way. He is life. He is the Savior of the world. I'm going to invite